Welcome to the Politics of Fish podcast, the American Sport Fishing Association's bi-weekly podcast covering the people, organizations, and issues that impact the recreational fishing industry. I'm your host, Mike Leonard, Vice President of Government Affairs for ASA. On this episode, my guest is Chris Wharton, Senior Director of Fisheries Policy for the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Our topic is 30 by 30, which refers to a relatively new global initiative to conserve 30% of all lands and waters by the year 2030. As we all know, recreational fishing and conservation go hand in hand, so this initiative should be something we're all for, right? Well, as is often the case with fisheries policy, it's complicated. Chris and I go over the various ways that 30 by 30 is starting to play out in the U.S. and how the recreational fishing industry stands to benefit or be harmed depending on how the word conservation is interpreted. Let's dive in. All right. Well, welcome, Chris. Um, well, so first things first, uh, before we get into this fishing policy talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about the fun side of fishing. So, Chris, you recently had some luck fishing down in St. Lucia. So tell us about that, that fun little adventure you had. Yeah, my wife and I, I'm fortunate that she's put up with me for 30 years. So we wanted to go somewhere we'd never been this year. So we went to uh, St. Lucia and I picked it for two reasons, for the fishing and for the diving. And the fishing did not disappoint in that I never caught a blue marlin before and managed to, to catch my first. They're a powerful fish, as you might imagine. Uh, I, was, I was not disappointed in that regard at all. And uh, had a good captain that took great pains to, to keep the fish in the water as we were trying to get the hook out. Got the hook out pretty quickly, uh, revived the fish, and he, he went the went straight down so it was a it was just a great trip my wife was taking pictures and filming it all and just as excited well from what a standard february in arkansas looks like i imagine that was a a welcome trip a little bit of a different fishery than what you're used to uh back home i'm sure a little bit yeah our our bass don't get that big around here i'm sure (laughs) uh, it was it was certainly a, a relief from arkansas's winter weather that seems to not want to let go this year yeah, same here in D.C. It's cold and cold and wet and dreary out right now, but uh, hopefully spring's coming soon. And shad and striped bass runs and everything else will start picking up. But, uh, but Chris, for those who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and the work you all do. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation was started back in 1989 to support the relatively newly formed Congressional Sportsman's Caucus. You know, there's caucuses for everything on the hill up there. And uh, so some members that like to hunt and fish, both Democrats and Republicans in both chambers said, hey, why don't we start a Congressional Sportsman's Caucus? So they did. And it quickly grew to be one of the largest caucuses and bipartisan caucuses in Washington, D.C. And they realized that they needed a foundation to kind of help support the caucus uh, and to make sure that the caucus, those members, those members of Congress were connected with the sportsman's community out there. Uh, so they started the Congressional Sports and Foundation in 1989. And over time, the program's grown. In 2004, that model had worked so well in Washington, D.C. that uh, we, we approached the state. Uh, states out there in the state legislatures to see if it's a model that they thought they might be interested in. And there were a couple of states that already sort of had a a sportsman's caucus established. But in 2004, the National Assembly of Sportsman's Caucuses, which is state legislative uh, sportsman's caucuses, was launched. And there were 21 original sportsman's caucuses formed that year. And today we're at 49 state legislative sportsman's caucuses. Uh, Hawaii is the last holdout. but we're, we're working on them, too. So we work with over 2000 state legislatures across the country on sportsman's related policy, um, hunting, fishing, trapping, recreational shooting, you know, all the things that fund the, 
the conservation excise taxes that come back to, uh, to conservation in the states. But not to be left out, in 2009, a couple of governors approached us about doing a Governor's Sportsman's Caucus. So in 2009, we launched the Governor's Sportsman's Caucus. And today there are 30 governors that are members of the Governor's Sportsman's Caucus. I serve as the Senior Director of Fisheries Policy. Most, more recently, I was doing both that and managing the Midwestern states, 14 states in the Midwest, along with a couple of my colleagues. But uh, as of this year, I'm in full-time fisheries and, and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, well, there's plenty to keep up with for sure. And that's one, one of the main things that... Um, from the ASA CSF relationship that has always been so valuable, valuable is you all have a direct connection, sort of finger on the pulse of what's happening, not just in DC at the federal level through the Sportsman's Caucus, but through all these state legislatures, which has um, become an increasingly big priority for the sportsman's community as a whole is, is keeping track and engaging on all the issues going on all the time. So, um, you know, you guys are an incredibly co- close partner of ours at ASA. And uh, I think the, the topic of today is a good example of why that partnership is so valuable because it's such a massive policy to keep up with that's manifesting itself in so many different forms. And uh, so I guess getting to that, a simple question with maybe not such a simple answer, what is 30 by 30? That is a good question. And I wasn't aware of it until this is probably uh, late 2019, early 2020. Uh, when we had a, a resolution in the U.S. House and Senate just embracing this, this global initiative that is originated out of the uh, United Nations Convention on Biodiversity. And basically, the goal is to protect 30% of countries' lands and waters by, by 2030. And at first, you know, I kind of thought, well, well, hey, the rest of the world's going to is finally going to catch up the United States in that uh, we've always uh, practiced conservation and, and uh, we as hunters and anglers specifically were the first to not only support and advocate for conservation, but also to fund it through both license sales and wildlife and sport fish restoration programs, which obviously your members pay into. Uh, that's been so incredibly important for, for funding conservation achievements in this country for, for, for so long. Uh, and it's a model that's, that's unique to the rest of the world. Nobody else has a model like we have. So I thought we, we're already way ahead of this game. But it wasn't long before we saw a bill pop up in California, uh, Assembly Bill 3030 in 2020, that we really realized, that, wait a second, there's definitely some different perspectives out here on, on this 30 by 30 initiative. And the California bill talked about protecting 30% uh, of the state's land and lands and waters. And matter of fact, it said declares it to be the goals of the state to protect 30, 30% of land and waters, but the sponsors weren't willing to define what protect meant. I mean, if we're talking about conservation, the wise use and management, that's something we support. But if we're talking about preservation, you know, this completely hands-off approach, and that's not something that we can support. And then we we also tried to work with the sponsors on, on what existing protections out there would, would count towards this 30% goal, and, and there was no clear answer whatsoever. So we realized pretty pretty early on that, hey, this is something that's it's coming. We need to get ahead of it, and we needed to develop a list of principles again, as the nation's original conservationists of, of what 30 by 30 policies need to contain in order for us to support. So uh, working with you at ASA and some folks at CCA and BASS, 
you know, we started bouncing some ideas off you guys as far as the statement goes. And uh, lo and behold, I think it's about six or seven months later, we finally came out with a statement that we published in, in uh, October of 2020 that said, this is this is what needs to be in, in any 30 by 30 policies. And in order to get that information out, we created a website, huntfish3030.com, uh, that, that has the statement uh, listed there, as well as the, the 66 signatories that we have from the sportsman's community on that statement now. That move was actually really wise uh, on our community's part because right after that published, we, we started getting some calls from the Hill wanting to talk to us about it. And, and we were able to insert ourselves in the conversation pretty early on. And I think we've done a pretty good job collectively as a community staying engaged and, and continuing to talk about conservation from our perspective in a meaningful way. Yeah, it was an interesting development contrasting what happened in California versus at the federal level. And I think in some ways as a community, we sort of take it for granted that, um, you know, hunters, anglers, sportsmen are doing so much to support conservation, not just in the excise taxes, licenses we pay, but, you know, in all the other volunteer work and and habitat restoration work that gets done. Um, in California, maybe more than other places that can often get overlooked. And, and maybe that's partly how we saw such a different process go forward there where um, where that role of our community and supporting conservation and this being something we could endorse um, we just sort of lost from the outset as opposed to what seems like at the federal level you know that's been much more embraced and recognized that this is something uh, that we all can and should be a part of if, it, if it's done the right way but you know I think as we look at conservation versus that idea of preservation in inherent in that uh, conservation ethic is the ability for anglers and hunters to actually access and enjoy these resources. Sometimes that can be oversimplified as uh, maybe competing with conservation objectives. But in your mind, Chris, do you see um, the ability for sportsmen and women to continue to access the outdoors and enjoy these pursuits being compatible with conservation goals, things like 30 by 30? 100%. Oh, 100%. I mean, people really don't value what they're not connected with. And, and, and hunters and anglers have, have an inherent love for, the, for, for fish and wildlife in the outdoors. And again, going back to the fact that we've, we've, we've funded the conservation for, uh, well, close to uh, almost 100 years now uh, when the Pittman Robertson Act was passed. And, and long before that, more than 100 years for many state natural resource agencies and license dollars. And um, We've always advocated for, uh, you know, regulating uh, our activities to make sure that we have healthy, sustainable resources. And in that care, the fact that we pay attention, that we're usually the first to know that, hey, you know, the fishing's not nearly as good as it used to be in this area or, you know, off this coastline or in this particular lake. And and, and expressing those concerns with biologists and, and, and working with them to understand what the problem is and, and supporting whatever regulatory or legislative efforts need to happen in order to help fix that problem. So uh, they absolutely are compatible. And I'd argue that uh, that our critters out there, fish and wildlife need us as much as we need them. Yeah. So jumping back to the process, you mentioned the state bill in California. You've mentioned early conversations at the federal level. Um, bring us up to date on, I guess we'll start at the federal level. Where are things currently in terms of um, 30 by 30 moving forward within the, the current administration? Yeah, Mike, uh, 
early in Biden's administration, uh, I believe it was January of 2021, he issued an executive order that dealt with climate change. And, and within that executive order, there was a, a directive for developing a plan for achieving 30 by 30 here in the United States and uh, gave the the agencies responsible for, for leading that effort, which was the Department of Interior, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Agriculture, and the Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, those four agencies were tasked with coming up with a report in 90 days. And then we, after that uh, executive order was uh, released, you know, we as a community got together with the various uh, agencies. We set up meetings with the Hunt Fish 3030 Coalition and the various agencies and, and began having conversations with them about what 30 by 30, what conservation means from our community's perspective. And it was a it was very engaging dialogue and we were very optimistic that the report, when it finally did come out, would be favorable. And it was. The American the Beautiful report was released, uh, I believe, 1st of May in 2021. And it contained a lot of the principles that were in our Huntfish 30 by 30 statement. And the Huntfish 30 by 30 coalition was highlighted as one of the groups right up front uh, that, that they uh, engaged with and drew from. So, so things were, were, were headed in the right direction. Uh, the next step in the process as a result of that report is to develop the American Conservation and Stewardship Atlas. And that's basically going to serve as our baseline is what counts, you know, where are we already? And last October, again, the coalition kind of came together and put, put together a uh, a pretty comprehensive document on the both the terrestrial and freshwater and marine side on on uh, what we think should count. And, you know, we're kind of at the opening of the funnel here. So we're trying to get everything we can uh, that we know are good conservation programs to be included in this atlas. And the administration released a report, a progress report, basically in December, which didn't have a whole lot of updates, but it's still saying kind of the same things that, uh, you know, it still includes hunters and anglers as, as critical stakeholders in this whole process. So at the beginning of this year, they put out a, uh, a call for comments through the Federal Register on what should be contained in the Atlas. So we went back, uh, as you know, and took a closer look at our recommendations and, and kind of uh, distilled those down a little bit further into criteria as to what should count in the document. We just submitted those um, several days ago. So the next step will be to continue to engage with the administration uh, on, you know, what they're thinking with it, as far as this atlas goes and to be able to advocate for, for a lot of the programs that already exist out there that, that have contributed so much to conservation over the years and could do so much more if we can drive resources there. You know, it's not, we don't really need to reinvent the wheel here in the U.S. We just, we can make that wheel better, but we're gonna, it's going to require some resources. Yeah, so we seem to be on the same page uh, in terms of kind of overarching vision for for conservation and how this initiative fits in. But I guess as we're providing input to hopefully plug into this this atlas, which I guess will sort of be the the measuring stick for what counts, what doesn't count, where we're at currently. Um, can you talk some more about those types of of programs that we think are successful and what makes this fairly complicated in addition to all the different agencies involved in is you got different programs that apply uh, terrestrially, you know, on the land, you got uh, sort of in your freshwater lake river stream programs, and then you've got your marine environment and they're all a little different and require different needs and have different challenges. Um, I guess the oversimplified thing would be to just sort of wall it all off and not let anybody do anything 30%. Of, of these areas, but uh, I don't think that's what we're advocating for. So what are some of the types of uh, conservation programs that 
uh, we as a community uh, think should should fit in and be included as this atlas is coming together? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. It's a very broad question, as as you well know. And if you look at it from kind of kind of the terrestrial side, we already have a lot of our USGS Gap One or Gap Analysis One and Two are in pretty well protected. You know, that's wilderness areas and uh, monuments out west. But you know, to really get to thirty percent, you're going to have to have to work with private landowners because in the eastern half of the country, you know, most of the land is 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 private. But there's a lot of good conservation work already going on on those private lands, whether it's through farm bill type programs such as the Environmental Quality Incentive Program or the Conservation Reserve Program. You know, there's a number of programs out there that that have a direct tie to correlate or correlates directly with with wildlife abundance and, and, and healthy uh, waters and reducing uh, nutrient pollution. Uh, there's just a number of programs out there, not only from the federal farm bill uh, top level and through the national things like the National Fish Habitat Partnerships, which although they get a little bit of federal money, you know, they're, they are, uh, they scrap to get it, to get it locally and usually match those federal dollars quite a bit. But in order to, to really have an impact, we've got to embrace those programs through those voluntary incentive-based type programs. On the marine side, that's that's a little bit different because we've got a lot of water that's federal waters, as you well know. And the Magnuson-Stevens Act is the strictest fisheries management law in the world. And we have highly regulated fisheries here in the United States. And we do a great job, I think, of, of conserving our marine fisheries resources just through our management practices. But even on top of, of the actual regulating the fishing activity itself, you know, we have designated uh, essential fish habitats. Whenever we realize that there are some habitats out there, the councils do that, uh, that are important for fish production and need to be protected, you know, they put bottom gear restrictions on them. Uh, the habitat area is a particular concern. So there's a number of things already existing within the council, regional fishery management council's jurisdiction that they have and do implement whenever they see a need to conserve uh, a particular habitat. And then you, if you look at things like uh, reef fish management plans, you got coral management plans, you got coastal migratory pelagic management plans, highly migratory species management plans. So, so basically there's a management plan uh, to make sure that we have sustainable, healthy fisheries resources from the bottom all the way to the surface. So there's a lot of overlap there. And, and so we're arguing that we're already pretty good here in the United States whenever it comes to, to areas that are that should be considered conserved. You add on top of that, National Marine Sanctuaries, uh, many of them, most of them uh, do allow fishing, uh, which is, again, it's, it should be, it's a compatible use because, again, we're we would be the first to advocate for changes in in, uh, in fishing regulations if there was a problem with the fishery and it was clearly identified that that uh, recreational fishermen were were part of the problem. Yeah, it's one of the challenges with this this discussion, particularly in the marine environment, is you know there's a lot of doom and gloom. The oceans are in crisis. We've got to save the oceans. Um, but how you do that <laughs> when you look at what the real challenges are, which in a lot of cases are you know pollution runoff. Um, you know, disease with habitat like corals, uh, plastics, uh, warming seas, things that are well outside the control of fishing, but those are hard to address. So the one thing that's easier to address is let's just regulate fishing, but that's not necessarily yeah. going to tackle what are the true challenges. Not to say there aren't issues with, with certain fisheries that, that warrant some scrutiny, but um, as you said, the management system's largely there to respond 
One of the hopes of this whole thing, you know, and you and I have talked about it before when we first started trying to pull this coalition together is if this is truly about conservation deliverables and identifying where our problems are and how we can how we can work locally to enhance conservation and improve biodiversity, uh, then that's what we're all about that, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of these, a lot of the efforts are going to have to be locally led, state led, led by the states. I mean, they have that the expertise to to identify where the where the challenges are and to work with private landowners and uh, in, in addressing those. And, and talk about pollution runoff. Obviously, the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico is a great example where what goes on in the watershed beginning in Minnesota has an impact on our oceans. And, and I think through more emphasis on programs like the National Fish Habitat Partnership or, uh, you know, who knows if we're fortunate enough to get the Mississippi River Restoration and Resiliency Initiative through where we have a, a clear focus on improving habitat up and down the Mississippi River, that'll take care of the nutrient loading problems. So if, if that's what we're talking about here, that's part, that's something we, we're, we're for and we have been for. If we're talking about just drawing lines on a map and closing it off and patting ourselves on the back, hey, we can serve this, we're out. Because most of the time, that doesn't actually even contribute to conservation. If you set up or block off a, a section of the National Forest and call it a wilderness area, what happens when invasive species get in there? I mean, you can't even go in and do a controlled burn that might be able to wipe them out with one, one controlled burn. Uh, because you can't bring mechanized vehicles into those areas. So from a conservation standpoint, locking things up simply doesn't make sense in a lot of cases. Yeah, you've highlighted um, certainly I've been something I've been struggling with with this initiative of uh, kind of how to feel about it, because you know, you're right. If we're talking about good, legitimate conservation and proven models that are out there and putting more emphasis on those, uh, you know, 30 by 30 can be a great thing. What I what I struggle with, and I think a lot of others struggle with, is trying to put kind of hard metrics on it and saying, yep. you know, thirty percent is the end all be all. If we only get to twenty nine percent, you know, biodiversity is doomed. But thirty percent, you know, where and yep. to their credit, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing from the the administration here is sort of transitioning less on the thirty by thirty and more on the America the beautiful theme of, you know, let's focus on making sure these resources are properly conserved. We're focusing on programs that do a good job of conservation in a collaborative way and maybe focus a little less on the hard numbers. But I guess in contrast to that, I did want to touch on, because we referenced it earlier, the great state of California, where those hard metrics and uh, oversimplified sort of one-size-fits-all management approaches is, is mostly what we're seeing in the state so far. So can you fill us in on the latest in California and maybe how that contrasts with everything we've been talking about at the federal level? Yeah, the uh, when AB 3030 failed, fortunately, in 2020, the governor, Governor uh, Newsom, issued an executive order that basically directed the state agencies to kind of come up with a plan on how they're going to s- still achieve 30 by 30. So the California Natural Resource Agencies held a held a series of hearings or stakeholder presentations. I'm not even sure what they were really called, but uh, there, we were pretty disappointed in that process because the recreational fishing community was promised to, you know, have a seat at the table during some of those discussions, and, and we didn't feel like we, we had one. So it recently came out this spring with, uh, or I guess it was at the end of last year, um, they came out with their pathways 
to 30 by 30 documents. So this basically describes how they're how they're thinking they're going to get there. And one of the one of the stark contrasts between California, which I guess probably isn't surprising to some, but uh, the stark contrast between California is the way they look at protection is preservation <laughs> and more so. Whereas the administration in the American the Beautiful report, to their credit, really did a good job of, of emphasizing that what we're talking about here is conservation as opposed to preservation. And California's taken that more preservationist route, which is which is really frustrating. I know the community has has recently submitted comments urging them to take a take a better look at at what they're what they're actually proposing here, because on the marine side, you know, they're right now, even though they've got a number of federal marine sanctuaries that allow some or limited fishing, they're not even counting those. They're only wanting, they're only willing to count those notate marine reserves under the Marine Life Protection Act, which is those haven't even been evaluated if they if they are achieving any goals and what what were the goals to begin with? Because I don't think they really were addressing any any fisheries that were depleted by recreational fishing. So yes, California is a, a frustrating uh, state to work with, as we all know, but it's still early in the process. You know, this is their their pathways document, which they will go back and I'm assuming revise based on some public comments. Uh, I'm not really holding my breath, but uh, they will lay down the process for uh, implementing additional measures to achieve conservation goals. And and we as a community on both the fishing and the hunting side need to be at the table and just in, in and engage throughout that process so that we make sure that we can continue to to have access to to fisheries in that state. Well, let's hope and more than hope continue to advocate that uh, California sees the wisdom of what's happening at the federal level and I think a much broader level of buy-in and uh, support across the board that that scene. And not to say there aren't still skeptics and and reasons to have uh, concerns at the federal level as we, we still have some questions mm-hmm. that need to be answered. But um, overall, the the approach is lending itself to be a much more uh, collaborative, you know, strong level of buy-in, which is ultimately what's needed for, for all this stuff to be successful is for folks who care about, depend on these resources to be bought in, in the conservation goals. But uh, are there any other states real quick, Chris, where uh, you all through NASC are seeing um, 30 by 30 related, whether it's full-blown legislation or resolutions, anything like that, that folks should be aware of? Oh, yeah. We have uh, seen several bills this year, one in California, which another one in California, not surprising, but it failed. Uh, New Mexico had a resolution that, that didn't didn't make it out. It was, that was supporting the 30 by 30 concept nationally. Um, New York actually has three different bills, and one of those I guess a couple of them were introduced last year and we actually supported it because what it does is basically the California, uh, the New York lands office, basically they have a program for, you know, acquiring land from voluntary sellers. And, and basically all this bill does is, is makes it a priority that those lands that they acquire are, uh, are have a higher conservation benefit. Uh, so, you know, lands along a river that, that uh, has a lot of nutrient runoff and, poor riparian condition, you know, go in and restore it. And it makes sure that those areas that they acquire are open for, for, for recreation, uh, for hunting and fishing. So that's, uh, that's actually a positive. Uh, Vermont has a bill that would be problematic, uh, but it's still in committee and hopefully it's not going anywhere. And then and you've got the other side of the coin. There have been three Western states that have passed resolutions this year that basically push back on any 30 by 30 and the, the Biden administration's 30 by 30 push. And that was in Arizona, Utah, and Wyoming. Kind of all over the board. We're seeing them pop up. Um, 
the important part is to be engaged and, and be aware. And last year, again, there was one other state, and I'll mention uh, Illinois introduced one, and we were able to work with the bill sponsors to, um, and, and basically what they introduced was a bill that, to develop a task force to be able to bring back recommendations as to how the state of Illinois could achieve uh, the 30 by 30 initiative goals. And we were able to, the, the initial seats on the task force did not represent sportsmen and women. And uh, so we were able to get a seat on that. Uh, added or the bill amended to, to provide for that kind of input and and we'll see where the where that report goes and we'll continue to work with the legislature if they if they decide to go down any 30 by 30 policy path but uh, but yeah we're, I think we're going to continue to see 30 by 30 related bills both pro and, and anti 30 by 30 in in the various states out there so we will we will stay stay engaged, pay attention, and certainly let let you and our, all of our partners in the sportsman's community know whenever we see some pop up. All right. Well, it shows the complexity in, in this work we do that um, you have a bill in California around this theme that is terrible and we all oppose it. And then you have a bill on the same theme in other states that we support. You'd think uh, if 30 by 30 was yep. bad, it'd be bad everywhere or vice versa. But it it's really less about 30 by 30 and more about um, are we talking about conservation or preservation and what steps we take to get there, but um, appreciate all that's that you it. all are doing that's to it. organize the community and keep us on top of it and monitoring everything that's going on federal state levels, not only on this, but, but everything else. And if, if folks haven't seen it yet, encourage them to go to the hunt fish 3030 uh, website where we've got a position statement there and you can see all the groups that are involved and, and stay up to date. And um, anything you want to tout as far as keeping up with all the other work that CSF has going on. Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you guys to sign up for for our newsletter, uh, the Sportsman's Voice, and where we put updates in there all the time about various legislation and policy that we're working on within individual states, both the hunting and fishing side of things. Uh, we also have uh, tracking the capital. There's a tab at the top uh, that, that deals with tracking the capitals, where we offer a free bill tracking software that you, that you can sign up for. And uh, whether if you're just interested in one state or a region or a particular topic across the country. Uh, you can you can sign up on that website and uh, it's it's free to you. We're, we're providing that to all of our all of our partners and sportsman's community out there. So certainly check that out. All right, great. Well, thanks, Chris, for all the intel and, and continued work. And um, we'll uh, I'm sure get you back on here at some point to talk about thirty by thirty or the dozens of other issues that we're working on across the board. I'm looking right now at a picture of you holding some uh, red snappers. Got a smile on your face when you're talking red snapper. A lot of times don't have a smile. Maybe we can get into the, <laughs> the policy details of that uh, one of these days too, but uh, appreciate the insights as always and look forward to having you back soon. Mike, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. And I uh, just want to say, I think you're doing a great job with these podcasts. And, and even though you and I are on conference calls uh, several times a week, matter of fact, we're on one together this morning, but uh, I've never really realized that you had such a great radio voice. So whenever you're tired of dealing with politics, uh, I think you're, you, you definitely have a, a future uh, ahead of you as a radio talk show host. Well, that's kind of you. I, I, it's probably less my voice and more about this fancy microphone we bought <laughs> would make anybody sound good, but uh, appreciate it anyway. So, all right, Chris, on that note, we'll, uh, we'll end and uh, have a great rest of your day and uh, good luck with your next fishing trip too. All right, man. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks again to Chris for taking the time to visit with us and share his insights on 30 by 30 and what's to come. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode, but in the meantime, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and share the Politics of Fish podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening and tight lines.